Welcome back to Mindwalk. Uh, this is MP Stratum. I'm your host on the Mindwalk podcast. And this is, of course, the podcast where we talk about all things new and promising in innovation and technology that shapes our world. And of course, specifically, we're interested in the world of mining and natural resources and the heavy industries that surround those. Uh, let me take a, uh, quickly take the time to thank MineRP. MineRP is the primary sponsor of the MineWorld podcast. MineRP is a global software company specializing in delivering value through digitally connecting mining enterprises. You can read more about MineRP on www.minerp.com. So today we have a very interesting guest and you can hardly read any mining magazine or online forum or uh, consulting company's blog without coming across someone who has an opinion about ESG and where the world is going and more importantly, where it should be going. And what it means to be uh, to be heading up a company that makes uh, noises about being net zero or sustainable. I've always wondered whether sustainability even really means anything in mining. But but today we've got a guest that can tell us all about that. And our guest is Deborah Johnson. Uh, Deborah is a senior strategist, net zero and sustainable mining, minerals and metals at Stantec. Uh, and we've known each other for probably the best part of six, seven, eight years odd. Uh, Deborah, uh, welcome to the Mind World podcast. Thank you so much, MP. I'm really happy to be here. It's a topic that I'm very passionate about. And so I appreciate yeah. the opportunity to share that with your listeners. That's right. Uh, we met each other, um, I think it might have been 2017, thereabouts. Uh, you were senior executive uh, for the Digital Mind with GE at the time, weren't you? Correct. And I think we probably met in South Africa. That's right. That's right. Since then, you've made quite a few interesting turns. Just talk us a little bit through your career and how you uh, how you eventually ended up with Stantec. Sure. Well, we're going back pretty far and uh, with a degree <laughs> in accounting and computer information systems. So it was uh, in my DNA to uh, to go into things that were numeric and, and financial, but it was also part of me to be sustainable from, from my youth. I can remember mm -hmm. moments with my father that uh, talked about the future of the planet, of things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I traced that love of sustainability back to those moments. Um, had a financial career and said, I need to get into running, growing, building something, just like my, right. my father was a serial entrepreneur. So mm -hmm. I joined commercial entities and then eventually started my own company, EcoEdge, um, back mm -hmm. in 2002. Uh, driving uh -huh. sustainability before it was in spell check, um, <laughs> driving technologies into industrial sectors like mining, transportation, construction, oil, gas, etc. Eventually got very frustrated at the speed or lack thereof that these industries adopted technology and right. more importantly, how they scaled uh, uh, or again, more accurately, didn't scale. Didn't scale, yeah. 
created uh, an understanding or framework around what the barriers were to scaling and adoption in these industries, then a model around how to overcome those barriers, realized mm -hmm. I was onto something and it needed a bigger pulpit. So mm -hmm. I went to the then CEO of GE Mining, explained why they needed this model. And he said, you're absolutely right. We do need you. So I joined GE and their digital mind group, enjoyed that great group of people, spent about three years there. They spun off to WebTech uh, as part of this, the transportation spinoff. I left and uh, then there was a pandemic and uh, about a year later joined Stantec um, with an even greater enthusiasm um, and a, a focus. I was able to focus then on sustainability in mining at yeah. the intersection of innovation, digital and sustainability. And that's been a lot of fun. I've been here about a year and a half. Great team. Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of things going on. So that's that's how I got here. It's, it's a very interesting intersection, I guess, between sustainability and innovation and then digital specifically. But but digital is not the only uh, frontier at which innovation takes place, right? Oh, absolutely not. It's it's across the board. In fact, my company's technologies were very much physical or are very much physical mm. technologies. And, and those struggle just as much as digital technologies to get to scale. Yeah. And, uh, and speaking of getting to scale, uh, getting to scale, it it doesn't just happen. It there are real um, barriers, as you've mentioned earlier. Between you know, that stands between um, an entrepreneur and success, or even even big companies with with great ideas have. Well, I guess they've got internal inertia to overcome, but um, it's not that easy to to place a great technological idea into uh, into the market out there never mind one that you know like the, the the kind of sustainability solutions out there seems to have been a bit of a grudge buy up to now you know that that companies thought oh, we'll, we'll do this but we don't really know if we if we do this only because it sounds good in the press or if we really want to do this how did you experience this this growth in 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 the understanding and the adoption of uh, the necessity for for bringing on board real thinking about ESG and not only window dressing? Good question. So, what I was seeing over the the years that I was working in these industries was that good technologies, great technologies were failing because yeah. they could not get the traction. Entrepreneurs can only hang on so long before they finally have to say, this is not, it's, it's not getting to where I envisioned it and I need, mm -hmm. I need to do something else. And, and that doesn't mean that the technology isn't good. The technologies are proven but the adopters don't see it that way they see themselves they've spent their careers 
differentiating themselves from the mine next door, for example. Mm -hmm. And so just because the mine next door uses whatever the technology is, doesn't mean in their minds that it's going to work for them. There's yeah. a whole theory um, in the tech industry called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, talks about adoption curves and so forth. And that's a very good read for people who are trying to advance new technologies. Yeah. We all know about Gartner in the digital space. Well, the interesting thing is Gartner Technologies are showing the ones today were on the Gartner curve in 2018. So mm -hmm. it's very true, you know, digital twins, all those things that we talk about are just now coming of, of light and, and coming of age in the mining industry. They were on Gartner four years ago and Gartner is pre-chasm. So that's a, a an interesting dichotomy for those who are familiar with it. That means that it's going to be very hard to get emerging technologies through. The other side of that is that there's a whole lot of non-technology reasons around the company itself, around the risk aversion, risk profile, around how you even go to market with a technology. Yeah. Just a touching on the barriers. But you you also started looking at companies that do innovation and uh, started building a bit of a database or a library of innovation and innovators out there, didn't you? Yes, I started building that probably 10 years ago in ver very much of the physical technologies that would improve fleets, uh, whether that was fuel economy, oil, uh, tires, things like that. Very physical improvements. Also started adding the digital pieces around routing and planning software, which were just coming of age when I started the database. And then as I moved more towards the digital space and towards the sustainability space in GE and at Stantec, I, I've maintained my database and kept it growing and adding technologies all around across the mining value chain uh, so that we can deliver on what the needs are and address the challenges within the mine and across its value chain. Before I get to some of the uh the specifics of those barriers to the adoption of, of innovation and, and, and new technologies. I want to ask you a controversial question, and that is, do you really think that mining has changed over the past year? I mean, we've heard about, we've heard people using the term digital transformation and digital disruption and so on. I've seen plenty of disruption, but I, I don't think I've seen that mean, that much transformation. It's evolutionary, not revolutionary, that's for sure. We haven't <laughs> hit that revolutionary point. Is it yeah. changing? Yes. Is it changing fast enough? No. There's a lot that needs to be done for digitalization. There's a lot that needs to be done for achieving net zero commitments. So that is one of the reasons I'm on such a mission to change how emerging technologies are adopted because yeah. it's a system that has left us 10 to 15 years behind. Yes, we're changing. Yes, we need to change faster. And, and so let's talk about 
you know, you, when you did a bit of research and then finally wrote something about those typical barriers to uh, to change and to adopting change in, in the industrial sector uh, specifically. What are maybe some of the top ones that you'd that you want to point out for us? In terms of the barriers, well, I think the biggest barrier is this perception that we are very different from, again, the mine next door or the other commodities or what have you, or we're so different from other industries. If I had to put a pin in it, I'd say mm -hmm. it's this perception that we are so different from other industries. How is that a barrier there? Well, think about the car that you drive. If you bought it within the last 10 years, it's got great sensors on it around checking your blind spot, which is about well, five or six feet, about backing up, about cameras everywhere. My newest car, it almost has a satellite, it seems like, above it to tell mm -hmm. me where I am positioned. Now, mm -hmm. you think about 80% of the haul trucks out there, I, the number may be inaccurate, but it's not far off, have none of these sensors. These cars have had this for 10 plus years. Yes, there are barriers. Yes, there's a configuration issue around, gee, we work in dirty environments. We work in mm. all these different places. But the reality is those are small barriers to overcome in today's digital world. There's no reason that a haul truck with a 140 foot blind spot shouldn't know what is in front of it and not, you know, we shouldn't be running over pickup trucks. We shouldn't be bumping into forklifts with these trucks. So so that uniqueness or, or seeming uniqueness, at least, you know, we've run into that a lot in my career as well, uh, implementing software solutions at mines, not only mines, but definitely mines seems to be leading the pack there, where, where one company would say, yeah, well, you know, we would partner with you to develop something, uh, but you can only take it to the market in two or three years past our use time because this makes up a part of, of our edge in the market. You know, it is it is part of our intellectual property. And so what ends up happening uh, is everyone pays a lot more for things and you, you end up building uh, these standalone solutions uh, that are protected by Chinese walls that could be so much more effective if they were just to, uh, to allow for open flow of of uh, information and connecting of processes and so on. Was that some of the big barriers that you also encountered? It flows down to some of them. You've got the build versus buy decision. Mining hmm. is very intent on building their own, just like you mentioned. The challenge is that there are great foundations upon which mining can be building using other industries, using other technologies. That build versus buy decision, I think, gets a lot clouded by this perception that mining is so, so different. If we start to use an 80-20 or 70-30 even view of what mining is and say, okay, the technologies have gotten us 70% or 80% of the way there, and now we need to configure it. We need to do that configuration to make it work within our industry. Understand those differences, acknowledge them, yes, but don't throw out 
the 70 or 80 percent that provides a really strong foundation. I wanted to move this along maybe to how this applies in the world of sustainability and ESG. It seems to me like, uh, of course, I mean, everyone is is now talking about uh, ESG the same way that they used to talk about uh, big data, you know, eight years ago, and then came digital twins some six to four years ago, and et cetera, et cetera. Do you think ESG is just another hype or or is there some real social stick to this? There's real social stick to it this time. I've been doing yeah. sustainability in one way, shape or form. Doesn't matter what it was called, CSR, net zero, mm-hmm. decarbonization, social license, sustainability, ESG, pick a name. And mm-hmm. I've been doing that for about 20 <laughs> years. So I've seen them all come through. I suffered through the clean tech collapse of 2008. And the difference between that and today is that the whole world has signed up for this. We realize in addition to climate change, not instead of, or, you know, that climate change is the most important, is that we have sustainability issues as a species. The dinosaurs were here 150 million years. We were, we've been here about 3 million. So we only have 147 million years to go. (laughs) And if we're going to do that, if we're going to make it, then we better change. And so there's a growing recognition. The new generation, I'm so excited, is really recognizing this. And they are on board and they know that it's their duty to change. So it's not going away for any industry. The other side Mm. of that question is that the supply chains are demanding it. And Mm -hmm. mining is the root of all supply chains. So we have to change in order to accommodate the customers and the end users who are not going to give up on it this time. And I guess it's short-sighted to think of these goals as only environmental goals. I mean, the the community, uh, the social factors that are that are included here, things like buying from the right people and involving the right people in in employment processes, etc., are as important, if not more important than the strict green goals, if I can call them that. Absolutely. DEI or diversity, equity and inclusion is something that has to be fundamental to how companies run their business. And if they're not, they're missing out on a whole lot of ideas and people that are important to their business. It is fundamental. So so if something's fundamental, then then why is it that that so many companies are still just reporting on it instead of building it into the way that they plan and operate? Business as usual. A lot of companies have to be forced to change. A lot of companies aren't thinking that way. They think day to day. And so it makes it more challenging. But the, the pressure is on. The reporting requirements are out there. They're publicly available. It's not optional anymore. So your uh, your current role at Stantec, just tell us a little bit more about how uh, how you guys help companies to, to achieve their net zero goals and, and to work towards sustainability. Well, 
Stantec is one of the most sustainable companies in the world uh, and definitely one of the, I believe, ranked top by corporate knights in engineering companies for sustainability. That's our own DNA. Then you look at how we help our clients and we have a focus on climate and carbon that is around adaptation, resilience, mitigation. And what that means is that we are looking at all aspects about how our clients can improve the communities in which they operate, focusing on the communities. And then within specifically within mining, we have focus on sustainable mining by design. In other words, all of our services are inherently to include a sustainability aspect, whether that's the E for environmental or the S for social or the G for governance. It needs to to look at that. So our people are told and taught how to to change that lens. You know, it, it reminds me of uh, when Elon Musk was asked when he put in the bid for Twitter. And he was asked, you know, if he removed the rules around um, free speech, how would he govern that? And he said, well, the, the platform would simply adopt the the local laws of each country within which it is uh, deployed. Do you see those, let's call it company-based rules and company-based values as strong enough guidelines or guardrails for uh, for sustainable change when it comes to ESG or or is there supposed to be an outside body that sets the target? It's an interesting question because there's several different angles you can take that from. I'll take it from where the industry is going, at least in terms of the ICMM members, member companies. You know, you've got some jurisdictions that have mining companies that don't don't uh, abide by the ICMM and aren't members. But we'll go we'll go with that that large body of, of companies. Now, putting that aside, those companies are selling their products into the marketplace. They're selling them yep. to Tesla, they're selling them to Ford, they're selling them to Apple, Intel, LG, across the board. Those companies are being held accountable by their stockholders to their net zero ESG commitments. Those are published. They have to account for their scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. The mining industry, all of our emissions are their customers' scope two emissions, Mm. scope one and two. And therefore, we've got to now abide by our customers' goals and commitments. You're seeing that now, Ford just announced last week, commitments to Vale, Rio Tinto, and several others, metals. Tesla did the same thing some months ago. And that has really opened the eyes of a lot of mining companies as to the realities of the commitments that they've made, the competitive advantage and disadvantage of achieving those commitments or not achieving them. I think that 
even more than regulatory issues may drive our industry. Yeah, so it is maybe as the, the link between uh, the shareholder, the board, the client, the worker becomes much more established and, and, and we start working for, uh, for a stakeholder economy and not only a shareholder economy, that these uh, community drivers become, or I should say community values become company values, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. You've got to, you've got to have the social license. I read a study or a, an analysis some months ago, and I can't tell you the exact numbers, but it pointed out the hundreds of millions of dollars per project that mining companies have lost because they invested in a project, they did not have social license and they had to mm. abandon the project. Mm. That says something. It's it's that alpha and beta risk of if you don't do this, here's the risk that you're going mm. to lose what you've invested. If you do do this and you design from the beginning and build that social license as you're going, yes, it has a cost, but is it really worth the public pressure? We, we live in a global society. Your community is local. Your community is global. You know what? We're running out of time. I, I wanted to just briefly come back to the, uh, to the whole innovation and, and getting off, kind of getting started uh, place as well. Uh, Stantec has a, has a, what do I call it? An offering or a proposition or, or a product, I don't know, called 18X. Uh, <laughs> that's aimed at accelerating and scaling industrial solutions. Um, why don't you just quickly uh, touch on that? Uh, because I think it's so important, even in talking about, um, you know, this whole stakeholder economy, if someone wants to get uh, off the mark, then they sometimes need a bit of help, don't they? Absolutely. And thank you for asking about A10X. That's, that's my baby these days. My children are grown, so I, I now have my new baby, A10X. A10X is a service that helps mining companies, industrial companies achieve speed to value. What that means is that if, for example, a company wants to adopt a new sorting technology or collision awareness or a digital solution and that solution is considered an emerging technology but it doesn't have widespread adoption so it's one yeah. of those gee i want to be first to be second or in reality first to be 16th because <laughs> these companies aren't exactly like me so i feel a need to pilot that i have heard statistics saying that 70 percent of pilots fail to achieve scale. Oh. That's a huge investment. Not only have you not yeah. solved your problem, you're also not spending your money wisely by doing these pilots. People are losing faith and losing trust in the whole project of adopting new solutions. Exactly. I mean, if you're at a site and somebody comes to you and says, I need you to trial this, they go, oh gosh, not again. Yeah. Not again. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to disrupt my production. Yeah. That's the part that is missed in looking at emerging technologies is the disruption to, in our industry, rocks over the line, that process. Yeah. I've heard it so many times that 
gee, we cannot disrupt what we're doing to change. Well, what A10X does is it de-risks emerging technologies. It takes away a lot of the disruption. And more importantly, instead of doing pilots or proof of concepts, which throw that name away altogether Mm -hmm. because... Once a technology is proven, you don't need a proof of concept. You need a proof of concept, yeah. And, and so what we focus on is validation to scale. We work with a client to select properly the right emerging technology, that 80-20. Okay, it may not be 100% there. There's going to be a configuration needed. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't provide the good foundation. And then... Yeah. We use what is the equivalent of EPCM, engineering, procurement, Mm -hmm. construction management, but that same model applied to emerging technologies. So now in de-risking and removing the messes that are caused by emerging technology companies as they try to prove, again, their technologies, we are instead focused on the scaling needs of the organization and removing all that disruption. So A10X is about accelerating and amplifying to a 10X level the value of tackling whatever the challenge is. So so is your client, the uh, let's call it the startup, for lack of a better word, uh, a company? Or do you work on the interface between uh, the the new provider uh, and the uh, early adopter? Our client would typically be, in the, in our case, the mine, because right. they're the ones that are going to get speed to value. They're the yes. ones that if you can uh, deploy this technology a year, two years faster across your entire organization, if that technology is going to save you in safety or in productivity or in meeting your goals, if it if it's going to produce that a year or two years sooner, you have now paid for the cost of our service multiple times over because Absolutely. it hasn't disrupted your people's time. It hasn't taken disruption to the rocks over the line. It hasn't caused all these other issues. And you solved the original problem faster. Wow, that sounds really, really interesting. Um, so if people wanted to to learn more about uh, A10X, where do they go? Well, we don't have things published right now. It's a relatively new service that we are we are launching and, and evolving the marketing materials for it, but they can certainly reach out to me on LinkedIn mm-hmm. or via my email. I think LinkedIn is probably the easiest. And I think that's also a good point to end our conversation. Uh, It's been a really interesting one, Deborah. Thanks a lot. But before I let you go, we always ask our uh, guests, what's on your bedside table? What are you reading? So that people get a bit of an insight into personal interests out of work. So I read a lot about execution and implementation and innovation and so forth to continue to grow the the A10X model and and the mm-hmm. barriers issues. So one of the books I I like is Loon Shots by Safi Bakal that talks mm-hmm. to how you're going to get the ideas over the line 
Our industry doesn't suffer from a lack of innovation. It suffers from a lack of scaling. And mm -hmm. Loonshots does a nice job of talking to some of the issues that, that we've talked about today. So I, I, I pick that up quite frequently. Um, I'm rereading The Innovator's uh, Dilemma. I like that. <laughs> well, there you go. Keeps you, I was going to say same, but I know that's that, that's for someone else to judge, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure anything can do that. <laughs> Deborah, thanks a lot for your time. I really enjoyed this and uh, all the best with, uh, with your good work at Santec. Uh, I hope you have lots of success there. Thank you so much, MP. I appreciate you having me on this, giving me the opportunity to share my ideas and thoughts and uh, because I think the industry is, is a great industry and we wouldn't have our cell phones or our podcasts without it. <laughs>